Welcome to the Canon Law Society of America podcast, where Catholic canon lawyers share their stories, their knowledge, and their love for the law. Now, here's your host with this episode's guest canonist. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this week's podcast. My name is Donna Miller. I'm the executive coordinator for the CLSA. This week, we had a unique opportunity to talk with an expert on the new Vatamecum that came out from the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith on July 16th, 2020. Father John Paul Kimes is a priest of the Eparchy of Our Lady of Lebanon of Los Angeles and an associate professor of the practice at Notre Dame Law School. For more than a decade, he served as an official of the discipline section of the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. He has taught the norms of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela and the praxis of the CDF for nearly a decade and has multiple publications on the modifications made to SST, various aspects of the DLEX described therein, the praxis of the CDF in cases of sexual abuse of minors, and most recently, the jurisprudence of the College for Recourses instituted by Pope Francis in 2014 and that of the Supreme Apostolic Tribunal of the CDF. I had an opportunity to interview Father Kimes late last week, and so we want to bring you that interview now. We are here with Father John Paul Kimes, and we want to welcome you and thank you for taking the time to be with us today. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's a pleasure to be with you and to talk with uh, our fellow canonists about this most recent document from the CDF. So speaking of this document, this Vatamecum, Tell our listeners, for those perhaps who aren't familiar with what Avadamecum is, what it is and for whom it was intended. Yeah, Avadamecum, in, uh, you know, to use uh, common American parlance, is a cheat sheet. Uh, it's when you don't want to take the time to study for the exam, you pick up the cheat sheet and it tells you exactly what you need to know. So the design of the Vatamecum is, is just that. It's a, it's, it has a simpler design. It's a, not necessarily as technical in its language because it's designed to pick up and say, oh my gosh, I've got an accusation. What do, how do I do a pre- uh, preliminary investigation? And other than listening to, to Susan's webinar where everybody's gonna learn how to do a preliminary investigation, you go here to number three and it says, hey, how to do a preliminary investigation. So it's designed to be a practical handbook. Not, there's nothing new, there's no new legislation. Uh, it's just putting together various pieces in a way that anybody can pick it up and say, you know, an expert or not, anybody can pick it up and say, okay, what do I do next? And that it gives you that answer. And so it's titled uh, the Vatamecum on certain points of procedure in treating cases of sexual abuse of minors committed by clerics. So it sounds mm-hmm. like it's pretty narrow. It's for sexual abuse, yeah. minors, and clerics. It's not encompassing other types of misconduct. No, I mean, the, some of the general information in there about how to do a preliminary investigation, how to do, uh, particularly how to do a preliminary investigation and how to do a, an administrative process, those are sections that could be applied to other matters. But the guts of the Vatabacum, the whole point of it is just this, what do I do when I have an accusation? And this is a pet peeve of mine. Anybody that's ever heard me talk about this already knows it. I don't ever like using the phrase sexual abuse of minors because it's not technical because it's technically a violation of the Sixth Commandment of the Decalogue by a cleric with a minor under the age of 18. That's the, you know, but again, the title already tells us this is not a document for technicians. This is a document, yes, technicians can make use of it, but technicians are going to say, well, why didn't they talk about this? And why didn't they talk about that? Because the scope of it is for people that don't have the technical expertise and the background, so that they're not going to call the crime a violation of the Sixth Commandment of the Decalogue by a cleric with a minor under the age of 18, what are they going to call it? Sexual abuse. And so the title already tells us in a certain sense, sets a tone for that any, you know, that we can see, okay, this is not a technical document. This is not legislation, most importantly. This is a handbook. It's a how-to manual. It's a cheat sheet. Um, so I, I think it's important to make that distinction, you know, and to hit it hard that this is not legisl- this is not legislation at all. That's not its intention. Its intention is to help people who are in the field know what to do next in the cases specifically of an accusation of sexual abuse of a minor by a cleric. Period. So why? Now, why did it take so long for this guy to be produced? <laughs> I mean, it's well over a decade, probably closer to two decades yeah. since uh, this started. Why now? 
Well, it's it's a, a document that's time has come. Uh, it's, we could say that um, it's also a document that even if it had wanted to be, even if it even if it had been published earlier, it would have already gone through so many uh, updates with all the recent legislation that's come out of I mean, it. We think about um, you know we have to think too in legislative times. It, from two thousand and one, you know, it was nine it was nine full years before there was a revision of SST. So it took nine years to learn. Uh, by applying SST. And we know immediately there were changes, you know, Pope John Pope II immediately saw changes that need to be made. We allowed uh, uh, an extrajudicial process where only a judicial trial was, was, in the first, was in the first round. So, I mean, we've, it's a document that's changed over time, got a full revision in 2010. It could be time to update the whole thing again. What the Vademecum does is it takes, it takes Sacramentum Sanctitatis Tutela, so it takes the norms of sexual abuse uh, of, the, of the CDF, it takes come no madre amorevole, like a loving mother, which, you know, people may have thought was a dead letter, but obviously it's, it's here, it's cited, so we know it's not dead, even though it's been superseded and replaced in some ways by Bosesti. So we have, uh, you know, those three pieces in particular, plus, uh, to me, the best part of this document, and I say this as someone who spent 10 years in the CDF, the best part of this document is that it's born out of a collective wisdom uh, a collective experience and wisdom, if you will, of men and women who are dealing with these cases on a daily basis. So the questions that come in over and over and over again, the CDF says, hey, look, rather than write a letter to each bishop every time they ask the same question, here are some answers to some basic questions that keep getting asked over and over again. So it's not that it couldn't have come out earlier, but it's probably that the time is ripe. Uh, given that the, the the successive legislation and all of the the changes that have been made uh, over the past couple of years, it just probably seemed that the time was right. And again, you have to think that even if the document had been prepared earlier, with the publication of Vosestis and with the changes that the Holy Father made last December, it 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 kind of had to wait in a certain sense. And we're at the one year mark, more or less, from the entrance into, or you know, whatever, whatever, whatever the phrase is in English. I apologize. The you know, the the the, the applicability, the, the the applicability of the norms of Bosestis. I was going to say intrata in vigore, which you know, for everybody that studied in Rome, was a phrase you heard a million times. Um, so the applicability of Bosestis, we're at a year from that. So it's kind of good timing uh, again, just to have all of the pieces put together in one document. So you and I have spoken a little bit uh, in preparation for this podcast, and, but something you just said struck me, we haven't talked about, and that is when all of this has been going on for the last, like we say, 20 years, how big of a role did the United States play in all of this? Well, I think it's uh, you know, fundamental. It cannot be overstated, the role that the 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 efforts on the part of the bishops in the United States, the efforts on the the good work, the hard work of members of the CLSA, it's it cannot be overstated the impact that that's made in all of this. I mean, I think immediately, um, you know, something I wrote about ten years ago uh, when when the revision came out in two thousand and ten. What was standard in the U.S. was standard practice in the U.S. that the that the restrictions, that the the cautionary measures of Canon 1722 and and its and its parallel in the Eastern Code, that those precautionary measures in the U.S. it says they must be imposed. You know, the essential norm says they must be imposed at the moment that an accusation is received. Uh, but if for the but that came into universal legislation as can be imposed as a slight change. But the impetus for for a lot of the the revision of SST has come from the experience of the United States, both the legislative experience and the lived experience of really some difficult cases. I mean, and you always say tough cases make, you know, hard cases make bad law, but in this case, lots of hard cases and lots of good work have made for a better law. And I think, I don't think it can be overstated the, 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 the fundamental importance of the experience uh, in, in, our, in, our, in our society, in, in the American context, and how that has helped awaken other Episcopal conferences to just how serious this problem is and how serious not responding to this problem in a transparent and concrete and definitive manner is. I think the whole world has learned a lot from the experience in the U.S. Not all good, but a heck of a lot more good than, than bad, for sure. And I think the, the U.S. continues to be a leader 
thanks mostly to the good work of the great canonists that we have in this country. So most, speaking of canonists, most of us have been waiting for, I dare say years, for book six to drop, and then suddenly <laughs> this comes out. So is there a relationship between no. those two events? You don't see No, there, is, there isn't. Um, for better or for worse, um, you know, the, the legislative process is one thing, and since this isn't legislation, it's another. And again, the choice of this format, of the Vitamakum, of this handbook format, also makes it easier to update. So when book six, when the Lieber Sexton finally sees the light of day, this birthing process that, you know, as St. Paul would say, all of creation groans awaiting for the birth of, 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 the, of book six. Uh, when that happens, whatever adjustments need to be made to the Vatimekum can be made in a split second. Um, you know, they'll, they'll be thought out as split second only in the sense that, you know, everything will be thought out, everything will be well coordinated, but it's easier to change if I to make them than it would be to change legislation. So the legislative process is just long and slow because it needs to be, because it needs to be thorough and it needs to be vetted and everybody needs to sit down and say, what are the implications of this language on this other thing in the code? And all of that, as, as we know, as canonists, Figuring out all of those connections and stopping to take the time to, to draw those connections and to really think through just takes more time. So there's no connection with, there's none whatsoever that I know of or that I would intuit uh, with the pub, between the publication of the Vatimekum and an eventual uh, promulgation of book six. So sorry, everybody. We'll just wait. <laughs> so let's talk now a little bit about the Vatimekum. I mean, it's, it's lengthy, so obviously yeah. it would take for someone to do a commentary on it, it's going to take some time, and yeah. uh, and perhaps someday you'll publish something is on that. that. Is that a hint, Donna? Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of a, a hope, I guess you could say. So when you when you received this and started reading it, and I've already mentioned in your my introduction that that you've had some experience with the over in Rome. Was there anything that surprised you that? in terms of just, uh, oh, wow, this is something that really needs to be highlighted. We haven't seen this before or uh, something yeah, that really they're, they're, the canonists to absorb. Yeah, I mean, there are, there are uh, uh, I mean, I have 18 points or less that kind of, that kind of jumped off the page to me. Uh, but we don't need to cover all 18 of them. That's not the point. But I just, I, you know, so yes, there were lots of things. If, if anybody wants to see, I've got a text that's all marked up with stars and underlining. And, you know, not, not that you can see this because it's a podcast, but Donna just had to look at all my scribbles. So sorry, everybody. Sorry, Donna, for that. Um, but you, there, there are lots of things that jump off the page. Um, some that are, that are, are questions. The, the, some that raise questions, some that point to um, maybe some reflection that needs to be done on our part, uh, particularly in the American context, and some that are just helpful, I think, in putting the various legislations together in a way that makes it easier that, so that a bishop or his canonist doesn't, or doesn't have to flip around through a bunch of different things. I think, um, you know, particularly I would point to uh, number six and number seven, right at the beginning, there's a, a, a very helpful description of the delicts of what was, uh, technically speaking, child pornography, which now needs to be called pornography of minors, because, you know, we've, we've uh, the Holy Father raised the age. Again, everybody remembers that when, or if you don't remember, when SST was, was, was modified in 2010, when those norms came out, it introduced uh, three new crimes, which was, and I have to uh, pull over the English, I'm sorry, the, the acquisition, the possession, and the distribution of pornographic images of minors under the age of 14 by a cleric, which of course 14 for the, for the, the, the lovers of older forms of law, the 1917 code and those before, you'll remember the category of impubares, there was a difference between a minor and an impubera. So, so those who were prepubescent. Um, so SST 2010 picked up that distinction of prepubescent. So we wanted, it was, that was a crime. Now, what isn't in here, which has constantly been criticized and the CDF has said it over and over again, and I'll repeat it one more time, the production, the production of pornographic images of minors, not just under 14, but pornographic image of minors under the age of 18 has, in the CDF's own jurisprudence, been a crime since day one. So from 2001, the production of child pornography has been a crime. Why? 
because the production of pornography is a direct offense against the person. So it was always considered by the CDF as a violation of the sixth commandment of the Decalogue, you know, with a minor under the age of 18 by a cleric. So the production of, the reason that production isn't mentioned here is because the CDF always interpreted production as sexual abuse of a minor, to use common parlance. So in 2010, it added those three categories, the acquisition, the possession, and the dis distribution. Now, what's happened since then? The Holy Father has raised the age from 14 to 18, so, and, and has clearly delineated that now those that are under, you know, those that from 14 to 18, from the beginning of this year, from the 1st of January, 2020, are also the uh, competence of the CDF. Now, again, so if, if you know, and, and the here then, you know, here's where the canonist mind starts, starts reeling, because then you start asking yourself about, about prescription, you start asking yourself about competence, you start asking yourself about, okay, well, how do you determine the age of the minor in the pornographic image? All of those are great questions uh, for another time, for another time. Um, but, you know, so this is, you know, you can see your canonist mind should start reeling when you read number six in a good way. It should start putting all the pieces together, lining them up. And that's what number six has tried to do in, in as clear a way as possible to distinguish those delicts around what is now, what should now technically be called uh, porno pornographic images of minors, not so much of, you know, of the impubares that was uh, in the previous legislation. Now, uh, number seven is equally important. Number six and number seven are tied together because it goes back and it says, you know, and explains the production of pornography. So in case, you know, you, I, in case I didn't explain it well, just read number seven. Uh, you know, that, that production is a separate delict and it has been, and that, um, you know, that needs to go, it needs to be included uh, in everybody's mind when we consider what was delictual behavior and when was a certain thing delictual behavior. So that's kind of, you know, the first thing that I think is helpful um, and I'm just going to roll off one or two more, and then I'll let you interrupt me again. Um, please interrupt me for the sake of everyone listening. Uh, if we go to numbers 11 and 12, um, we talk about anonymous sources. Now, in our, we have to be honest, in the American context, this question, it doesn't bother us. The bishop, no bishop in the United States is going to hesitate for half a second whether an accusation is signed or not. If it's an anonymous source in America, it doesn't matter what it is, we jump on it. This is super important, not so much for you know, the American world, for the Anglophone world, but for the rest of the world to clearly state that just because an accusation is, a, is anonymous, and then we'll have to talk about the language of accusation too, um, just because this information comes from an anonymous source, let's say that because this information comes from an anonymous source, does not mean that you can automatically discard it. Now, it's obviously also the case that if the source is named, signs his or her name to the you know to bringing this information forward. If it's I, John Paul Kimes, accused Father X of of having done A, B, and C to me in this time frame, obviously that has more weight than an anonymous source would. But the mere fact that something is anonymous does not mean, does not allow you to throw it away. You have to invest. You know, you have to take it and see if you can if you can move forward with it. So I think this is again not so much important for the American context necessarily, but you know, anywhere else in the Anglophone world, if you're listening and you were not treating anonymous sources seriously, do again. They don't have the same weight that a, a, a named and signed you know accusation would but they cannot be discarded because it's for the bad of everyone involved, for the bad of the church, for the bad of the, of, of the, of the, of the potential victim, and for the bad of the accused, of the accused as well. So we, you know, the, the CDF is saying, take anonymous sources and follow them up, and if you can, begin an investigation. So you can't just look at something and not see a name at the bottom and throw it, throw it in the garbage can. Can't do that anymore. Uh, again, not that that's something that happened in the U.S. in the recent past, but again, we just need to, you know, it's the CDF telling everybody, get on the same page with this, which I think is very important. Um, and then um, just, uh, uh, again, uh, putting together a couple of numbers, if we look at some of the language, so if we go to uh, section B under number two, 
uh, what must be done when information is received about a possible delict. So there's notitia de delicto. Um, and again, let me, let me sidetrack myself for half a second. It's very important to notice the, the language of the document. So the document has, as a guiding principle, anybody that reads through this can see the guiding principle of this document is to stick to the language of the code, of the two codes of governing law. So what, are, what is governing law? Governing law are the two codes, the CIC and the CCEO. SST, currently the 2010 version, uh, like a loving mother and vos estis. So th these are the sources and the language in the document comes to those and sticks to those fairly rigorously, fairly rigorously, excuse me, that's hard to say uh, on the radio or anywhere, I'm afraid. So um, we need to pay attention to the language. So we, we're talking about a notizia de delicto. So we, it's very specific. So that again, in the canonist ear, you should immediately think canon uh, 1468 of the, of the Eastern Code, canon 1717 of the Latin Code. I'm immediately thinking a preliminary investigation because of this notitia de delicto. Um, so, and, which is also important to, to, to remind the bishops that this is not, um, you know, it's not a notitia of a sin. So uh, the, already within this information, it has to be information of something that would possibly configure a crime, or that could be configured as a crime. So uh, again, this is one of those things that, as I said earlier, there's lots of language in here that we need to pay attention to, that we need to take time and reflect on, and particularly, uh, again, given the experience in, in, in our country, in, in the US in particular, given our experience, there's a lot of things in here that that should cause us to take a half step back and ask ourselves a couple of questions. And something like this is one of them. I would just say, you know, bishops, canonists, is it a notitia de delicto? Or is it a notitia that father has done something bad? Let's, you know, now it may be that we need the preliminary investigation to figure out if this is just improper behavior on father or deacon's part, or it's actually potentially criminal behavior. But again, this language should make us stop for a second and ask ourselves that question. Um, close the giant parentheses. Uh, there'll be a lot of those coming up, I'm afraid. Um, and, and so going back to the point of, of paying attention to the language, if we look at, if we take together numbers 16, 17, 21, and 26, all together, if we put those pieces together, you know, we, we want to think about um, potential conflicts uh, between the rights, uh, you know, the right to a good name. You know, we think immediately in the Latin Code of Canon 220, uh, the right to not having our good name illegitimately uh, offended or besmirched. And we look at number 17, um, you know, ecclesiastical authorities should make a report to the competent civil authorities if this is considered necessary to protect the person involved or other minors from the danger of further criminal acts. So don't, you know, it, it conditions our need to, to share that information. It conditions our need to share that information, you know, if it's considered necessary. Is it considered necessary to protect other minors? Is it considered necessary to avoid possible further criminal behavior to further to protect from having further victims. So again, this should make us stop and reflect, particularly, you know, in the American context when the first thing we, we see often is a press release or a letter read in the parish, um, you know, which have been standard practice in the US. And I'm not saying that they're wrong. I'm just saying that something like the language in these numbers in particular should make a stop and think about the relationship between the canonical and civil investigations, the inclusion of the threat to the, the ordinaries uh, from uh, like a loving mother and the responsibility they have, um, you know, under Bosesti. So all of these pieces need to be put together and not blended up, but we kind of need to make a really nice salad out of them so that we, we taste all the different flavors. We, we balance everything out and uh, and just stop and reflect for a minute. Um, but I, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't mean to continue on uh, just rambling, but these are the kinds of things that immediately jumped off the page to me when I was reading it. I'm like, okay, well, this is, this is great because even in the American context where we think we've got this down, we think we know what we're doing, this is gonna give us an occasion to stop and refine things to make them even better. Um, so I think it's an important document in that sense for sure. You've, my goodness, you've raised so many points and I have <laughs> gone through it and, and made notations too. And, and I, I think your point about 
the language is so important. Even in number 16, when I noticed in the, I had the translation, the English translation that the mm -hmm. Vatican put out and they, they keep saltum very similis. They don't do sort of an English translation. Right, so right, right. I, it made me wonder, it's like, okay, are they allowing whoever is reading this, the ordinary to think about that? Because they go on in number 18 and minute mention only in the case of manifest impossibility. Do you right, not right. In, so um, do they intentionally leave, leave some words in the original Latin? No, I mean, I, th I think you can see that. Um, now, I used to, you know, when I, when I taught this class in Rome, when I taught a class on uh, the SST norms in Rome, I would always tell someone that it's, you have to trip over verisimilitude. Verisimilitude is the lowest possible bar. So the English translation of manifest impossibility, that concept, you know, I think it's very effective. I think, again, um, you know, leaving the Latin in, you know, as you know, very, very keenly in number 16, this, you know, the saltum verisimilis. I mean, I think that's a, a very clear note that we need to, you know, we need to watch that. Um, but then again, I think the explanation of manifest impossibility in number 18 is more important for the rest of the world. So I think, you know, in number 16, there's something that in, you know, we who've been doing this more frequently and, you know, have, have probably better, more honed procedures than most other parts of the world, you know, we need to stop and read number 16 and they need to stop and focus on number 18. So that maybe they were too quick to say that, oh, it's, you know, this doesn't rise to verisimilitude. It's like, well, you know, manifestly impossible. Like, again, you have to work to not reach verisimilitude. And so I think that there's, there's language in here that's important for different parts of the world in different ways, but that a reflection on the language used in the document is important for all of us, exactly. And, 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 it, and as you know, and again, as you note very keenly, where they've left the Latin and not provided a translation, I think that should really call our attention. I think you're absolutely right. Your eye should jump everywhere. There's something incursive in here because there's something going on. <laughs> exactly. And then number 17 wedged in between those two that talks about making a report to competent civil authorities. Mm -hmm. I think we in the United States, that's become, I first yeah. started working with the bishop in 2001. And I think reporting, you kind of tried to find ways maybe not to have to report. But now I think it's become, let's report yeah. it, let's report it and let them decide. But for the rest of the world, is that still sort of um, a newness, do you think? Well, I don't know how, uh, you know, again, we have, we have to remember, too, the norms of Vosestis uh, that came out and spoke very directly about the issue of cooperation with the civil authorities. And if we think about the progress uh, that's been made in this language, I mean, you know, in the 2000, you know, after the 2010 norms came, back, came out, there's that famous letter from the CDF to all the Episcopal conferences telling them that they needed to do their own guidelines. So there was the famous guidelines that were all supposed to be done within a year. We'll set all that aside. People will have their canonists in Rome who still have nightmares about that. We'll let them, you know, have a day's worth of peace. Um, but that language then was to follow the civil law. You know, again, there was that first encouragement to other parts of the world there. You know, you, you, if you were required to report something, you need to report it. You need to follow the civil law, and this and and Vosestis takes it maybe uh, at least intention. The the I hate to use the expression spirit of anything with a bunch of canonists because I'm going to get stoned, um, but it certainly seems to be the spirit of Vosestis that we want to go beyond the basic minimum. And I think that this has picked the you know it's clear that this document picks that up as well, particularly in relationship you know the church-state relations is that the church wants to go wants to push it a little further. We don't just want the bare minimum. Now, there are places in the world where the bare minimum has already puts the church in danger, and, you know, Rome is more aware of that than you or I are sitting in our comfy, our comfy places in the U.S., but there's certainly an intention here, just as you said, for other parts of the world to, to, to push further toward better cooperation with civil authorities, um, you know, always when it's required, and then other times when it's prudent to do so. Um, and again, I think that that language comes out and again, ringing in our ears should be Vosestis and all of the, you know, all that led up to that. You had mentioned earlier about anonymous complaints and what about in cases, old cases, for example, 2003 or four, an accusation came mm -hmm. in and it was kind of looked at as, oh, it's maybe not anonymous, but 
just kind of looked at and pushed aside. Do you think it's uh, incumbent upon bishops now to go back and pull up some of those old cases? Uh, I don't want to put you on the spot. <laughs> oh, no, it's not that. I mean, everybody, if you could only see the face that I'm making right now. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and wow. revisit that's cases a, that may, you know, maybe yeah, we kind of thought, well, we brushed past it a little bit. Yeah, I think that's a great question. I, 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 I don't want to answer it. Um, because I don't know what I would want to answer. I would say this, that there's certainly a tendency in the US right now to go back and revisit everything, um, which I'm not convinced is the best tendency. Um, you know, especially, and I don't mean the cases that are unresolved in a certain sense, but there are lots of cases that thought they were resolved, uh, you know, by a previous ordinary that the new guy comes in and he wants to open up everything and go through the files and revisit things that, ah, mm. I'm a little hesitant um, to, sure. to, to to say anything more than that. That I'm like, mm, I'm not entirely ecstatic about that idea. Now, if that, now I will say this very, very clearly: if there are accusations that did not receive the proper treatment at the time, I do think it's important that, in as much as possible, you know, if there wasn't a preliminary investigation that rate, you know, that that sought the verisimilitude of the accusation, that there be a preliminary investigation and that. If that preliminary investigation be sent to Rome, and if the bishop thinks, <coughs> excuse me, or if the ordinary thinks that there's a, a good possibility of finding enough evidence to proceed to you know, a canonical process, that and he wants to do that, that he make that request of Rome. But I, but I would I would make a very clear distinction about you know things that were were settled in a certain sense, and maybe things that weren't properly investigated. So if something wasn't something had not been properly investigated. I think it should be definitely. So with this sort of massive document, and, and just in this short time, you've only been able to kind of talk about two or three of the points that, like you said, 18 things that jumped out at you. How can a canonist within his or her own diocese assist their bishop in absorbing and implementing the contents of this Vatimacum? Yeah, I think that, I, I think that for the most part, um, the Vatimacum is very straightforward. And that even if you just read it I don't want to say cursorily, but even if you don't dive into it, even if you don't stop and ask yourself your question, why this word and why that word, you know, even if you just, just follow the numbers and go through, you're already going to be a do, doing a service to you know, your bishop, to your religious community, to whatever. You're already going to be doing a service. If you start at number one and you end up wherever it is at number 130 or 145 or whatever, that, where does it, oh, excuse me, 164, where it ends. If you start at one and read to 164 and do that, you're already going to be doing a great service. Then I think, you know, as canonists collectively, um, you know, we need to stop and, you know, and this is where the Canon Law Society of America is, is going to do great work. I have no doubt about that, where men and women uh, are going to begin to pick apart different things and think about them out loud and in public. But that kind of research, that kind of thought process isn't necessary to actually use the document in the way that it's intended and therefore be of service. So I would separate the two. If a bishop asked me, hey, JP, what do I do? I would say, okay, excellency, let's start at number one and let's circle word at number 164 and do the applicable numbers. If we do that, we're going to be giving Rome exactly what they're asking for and you'll be, you know, everything, that's, that's the best we can do. And now if he asked me, hey, JP, what do you think about, um, you know, number 29? I'm going to say it's very important to, to stress, you know, the language of number 29 and to take it in conjunction with number 18 because it talks about a presumption of innocence. And, you know, that's something that in the American context, we perhaps need to reflect more about what's, you know, what's our presumption when we begin. Um, so I, I want to distinguish the two things, but I think as a practical matter, the best thing a canonist can do is read from one to 164 and, and do that, you know, and if you, if, you, if you do a preliminary investigation, the way it's described here, and you follow, you know, Susan's advice on her webinar, you're going to give Rome a great preliminary investigation, and that's going to help Rome respond more quickly to the bishop or the religious, uh, religious superior, and that way things can get moving faster. And again, one of the things I want to stress is that perhaps the greatest gift of, of the Vatimecum is that it's going to help local, it's going to help us locally prepare documentation better and send it to Rome in a way where Rome can respond more quickly 
and speed all the processes up, which everybody, you know, sort of the, the constant complaint is everything is too slow and everything it all takes too long. Uh, I can tell you, you know, having read preliminary investigations from various parts of the world for 10 and a half years, not all preliminary investigations are helpful. Um, and if we if we do what's here, and again, I'm going to plug Susan's webinar again because it's going to be awesome. Susan's webinar on the preliminary investigation, along with this document, are going to make us all better. And the better work we produce as local canonists and send over to Rome, the faster they're able to respond, and the better they're able to respond because they have all the information they need to make a good decision. So, if a canonist does have a question that they come up with. Should they try to send it to the CDF to say, here's a question, for example, to get a Roman reply, as we call yeah, it, yeah. or or talk amongst other canonists first to see if, if they can re help resolve well, that question? I, I think I think both are important. Um, you know, I, I, I think the great, you know, again, a great gift we have in a society like ours is that we can talk to each other. Um, you know, we, we can use the forum, we can pick up the phone, we can, you know, we can share information because, you know, not all Roman replies are equal, um, you know, as, 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 we, as we know, we have to be honest about that. Um, so I think we can, we can share our collective experience with one another. And then there are certain points that, you know, you're just going to have to sit, sit down and write a letter to Rome. And the other great thing that needs to be stressed is the CDF over and over and over and over again in the documents is write, ask. If you're stuck, ask us, tell us, we'll help you. We want to help you. We want to help you push past whatever barrier there is. So wherever there's a question, the CDF is almost in a certain sense begging, please write if you have a question. But for us, again, we have such rich collective wisdom, uh, you know, as canonists in the US that I think it would be, you know, it behooves us to talk amongst ourselves first. And then if we hear differing opinions, if we have different ideas, then say, hey, Rome, um, you know, I'm looking at this, here's the question. And I've talked to other people and some have said A and some have said B and I just, you know, we want to know the best. What do you think is, is the right answer? What do you think is the best answer? Um, so I think it's a both and solution. Uh, again, because we have such a rich wealth of experience uh, among the canonists in the U.S. that it's a shame not to take advantage of that first um, and then to present a question to Rome when there really is not, you know, any good clarity on a question. So stepping back then, what should the church at large, the average Catholic in the pews, if we ever get back into the pews again yeah, <laughs> on a yeah. normal basis, what, what does this document mean for the church as a whole? You know, I have, um, you know, I've, I've pointed to in my notes here um, at, on number 71, uh, it's honesty and transparency. It's honesty and transparency. It's that the church is honestly investigating these questions and the church is doing so in a way to, to draw, to, 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 not, uh, to show, I want to say to demonstrate her concern for her children. And the way we do that is with honesty and transparency. And you cannot get more transparent than having a document that's written in non-technical language where my grandmother could sit down and could pick it up and say, okay, what does the church do when they get this? What do they do? And my grandmother can sit down and read this. Now she may call me up and have a question, you know, because she knows her grandson's a canonist, but it's written in a way where, you know, anybody can pick up this document and anybody can stop and say, you know, whether, whether it's an accused priest or deacon, whether it's someone who want, you know, wants to bring forward an accusation or whether it's, you know, John and Mary sitting eventually in the pews whenever we get back there saying, I wonder how it is exactly we, you know, the church deals with these cases. Here it is. It's honesty and transparency. Um, and I think that for, you know, for the average, uh, average for, for the churchgoer, for the faithful believer, or for the person with questions, for the person that's concerned about the way the church handles these matters, I think this, this document is as transparent and as helpful as it, it could be. And written in a way where it's, um, you know, is, is accessible. Uh, you don't need a canon law degree to read this. It's written for people that don't necessarily have experience or a background in canon law to be able to follow again, as I said, from one to 164 and say, okay, this is what's going to happen. Um, yeah. So I, I mean, I think those, those two, those two words, I just keep coming back to honesty and transparency. I think that's the, the great gift of this document. I think you're right. And I think, because I thought about that over 
since it came out and I likened it to folks when I worked in the marriage tribunal, perhaps non-Catholics, why do I have to have this? And when you could explain to them, here's what the laws of our church are, here's the mm -hmm. theology of the church, here's the laws of the church. And now this document is finally to me something you can say to people, here is something a little more, um, even though it's procedural and not legislative, yeah. that we can turn to and say, here's why we do what we do. Uh, I, I think it's, it yeah. is uh, an attempt to show the church and the non-church, non-Catholic church yeah, at yeah. large. Um, you know, here's, here's what we're, you can hold us to this. Here's what we're expected yeah. to do. Well, exactly. And there's no, there's no question, Donna. Uh, and you, you know, we know this because we've, we've lived it in a real way. There is no question that nothing has been more damaging to the credibility of the church in, you know, oh, I'm going to say in the last hundred years, I'm going to be bold and say nothing has been more damaging in the last hundred years, to the credibility of the church and thereby debilitating the church, you know, taking away its ability to preach the gospel than the question of sexual abuse of minors by clerics. There's no question that this is the first and foremost um, damaging factor to the church's credibility. So the more the church can do to restore confidence that she as an institution, as a community of faith, is addressing this issue head on, and again, as I said, on, in an honest way, and you know, laying it out for the world. It's just as you said, you wanna know what we're gonna do here, hold us to this. Here's how we're going to do it, and this is what we're going to do. And I think it's 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 a fundamental importance uh, for the church's. You know, it's always a question of credibility. It's always a question of the church's ability to preach the gospel. The damage that's done not only on the individual level of the victim, but on the entire the greater level, the family, the parish, the diocese, the nation, the world. I mean, all of us. The church has suffered. You know, has lost credibility because of this issue. And this is one of those instruments that can help the church restore credibility and say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. Here's what we're going to do when we get this accusation. Hold our feet to the fire because this is what we said we're going to do. And, you know, I think it's, I think it's a fundamental importance for that. I agree. And I think it's uh, one of those kinds of things that keeps, well, help from being able to say, well, why does that bishop do it one way and that bishop do it a different way? And yeah. now we have some evaluative kinds of things to say, did you follow this step and this step? Right. And, 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 and you know, here in the, again, the, the guidelines project from 2010 and 2011 was supposed to be that. And, you know, in a lot of places it is. It is. And we know as canonists that there are lots of, of websites that you can go to and you can see a diocesan policy. You can see an Episcopal conference's policy. This is the CBF saying, this is the church's handbook. You know, all of those guidelines and everything else you have, those are all magnificent and wonderful. And we're going to do, we're going to give you something that's going to make all of those even better. Uh, and, and I think this document is, is, I think it does that well. Again, there are things that need to be tweaked. There are things that need to be re reworked. I mean, like I said, of the, the 18 things that left off the page, not all of them were great. Um, you know, uh, but those are things that those are things that, that we as canonists need. And, and the CDF has invited, you know, CDF has said, look, this is a living document. This is a document that this is not a one and done. And I, I love the, you know, the very beginning, it says, you know, version 1.0. I mean, it's, you know, it, 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 it gives every indication that this is a document that is going to be not necessarily under constant review, but a document that is going to be updated. It's going to be updated, you know, as needed and not you know, it's not going to be the Libra Sextum. It's going to take, you know, however many years of revamping to do. No, this is a document. We have version 1.1 tomorrow, if the CDF wanted to. Um, for, for example, I'm just, I'll point something out very quickly. Something, um, you know, number 62. Anybody that's a canonist, um, you know, that read number 62, the very last line says the provision may be properly called. And here we're talking about, you know, the, the precautionary measures from Canon 1722 in the, in the CIC that we know the essential norm said the bishops must impose when there's an accusation. The universal law says they can be imposed. Here, they're just saying, look, stop calling it a suspensio divinis, please. For the love of all that is good and holy, stop calling it a suspensio divinis. Number one, it, that doesn't exist anymore. Number two, suspension is a penalty. This is not a penal action. It's an administrative action. They're precautionary measures. Let's call them what they are. Here, you know, it's the CDF saying, please stop using this language. But what the CDF did, it, th there's an oversight in the canon. 
I mean, excuse me, in, in number 62. And it should have left off the page to every canonist that read it. Because you read the last line and it says in English, the provision would more properly be called, for example, prohibition from the exercise of ministry. No, it's a prohibition from the public exercise of ministry. That missing adjective public is fundamental. Well, this is not the CDF changing the law. This is not the CDF saying that the precautionary measures of Ken 1722 that we've told you you can impose are now something other than what the code wants. It's an oversight. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a simple mistake. There's not, you know, it, it can't be anything more than that. There's no way that the CDF is trying to, because then, you know, that, that is a suspensio ad divinis, which, you know, which, which is not what we're imposing at this point, because we're, he's just being a priest or deacon is being blocked from being prohibited from the public exercise of ministry, because that's what the precautionary measures of Canon 1722 do. So here, again, like I said, clearly an oversight. So what do you do? You write the, you know, you send an email to the CDF and say, hey, CDF, you, you, you may want to add the word public to number 62, because I'm pretty sure that's what you meant. Um, so I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, that's, that would be among the first updates, because something like that is an oversight, and we're all human, and anybody that's ever had to work on diocesan statutes or any, you know, any long document that numbers, numbers change, and different people look at them and make suggestions, things slip through the crack. The word public here slipped through the crack, nothing more than that. So please, anybody that's going to write an article about the CDF changing the nature of the 1722 precautionary measures into restricting all you know, priestly or diaconal ministry, please don't. Let's, just, let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt and say, hey, you missed a word. It happens. We all do it all the time. Um, you know, I, I, so I think things like that are where this 1.0 comes into immediate effect. You're like, oh. Hey, did you, God, really? Like, come on, that, that, that's, that's an easy one. Again, just an oversight. There's another, there's a, there's another similar thing in, in the Italian, for anybody that read the Italian, you'll notice that in all through this, again, going back to the rescript of, uh, of Pope Francis from the 3rd of December in 2019, where we basically uh, you know, said that these cases are no longer under the pontifical secret. And then we took the language from Bosestis and we talk about the secret of office. Now. That's, for, that's a debate for another time. That's, you know, anybody else can jump into that. That's, those are waters I will not even dip my toes into unless I absolutely have to. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna talk about that. But when you look in the Italian, in um, between numbers 139 and 140, there's a letter E and, it, and there's just a mistake there. It says the, the pontifical secret in the Italian, where in the English it clearly says the secret of office. So again, there, these are human errors. So we, we need to, I think, you know, we need to be, we need to be honest and we need to, to, to question things that need to be questioned, but we also need to say, hey, this is a document written by men and women like us. Uh, they're going to be things that are just simple oversights. So if something appears to be a simple oversight, like in number 62, or not changing the, the, the pontifical secret to the secret of office, when the whole document uses secret of office except in this one place, give them the benefit of the doubt. These are hardworking men and women who have a million irons in the fire like the rest of us, and that a word or two here or there slips through the cracks um, should not surprise anybody. Uh, so uh, I, again, I, I, I just bring that up to say that, look, the document isn't perfect. It's not meant to be perfect. It's meant to be updated. It's meant to be changed. It's meant to be revised. So there are going to be things in there. Now, granted, nobody wants to have an oversight like that, but these things happen. Sure. And let's not, let's not make a big deal out of them. Yeah. Anybody who's ever edited a publication knows yeah. that you send it to publication. Then the first thing when you open it up, you see that mistake that how did that yeah. get by me? Yeah, I read I read I read the article a thousand times. All of my friends read through it. I read the blue lines before publication. And the first the first word you see when it comes out in print is the one you didn't want to be there. Yeah, that's and that's what that's what happened here in these two cases, I think. Uh, well, Father Kimes, we'd lo I'd love to sit and have you tell us more of the 18 points that jumped <laughs> off the, the page at you. Um, we've got I know more you've, than enough, Don. I'm sure you've, you've got, got more than an earful. Well, you're, you're, you've got teaching to start thinking about and everything. But, but I know that you have, we're all going to be digesting this for yeah. a long time to come and that there's going to be more written on it. There's going to be commentaries coming out about it and things like that. In fact, I'll put out there that we may reconsider your uh, 
convention talk and which was going to be on Lieber Sextum and, and say maybe something on the Vatamecum might be a little more timely right now. But that well, that given will come. that the Vatamecum has been published and Lieber Sextum doesn't, it makes it easier for me for sure. <laughs> because you're already doing the work on it right now exactly. too. So, but, so is there any anything else that you'd bring to the attention of those of us listeners to just bring this to a close or tell them, uh, hey, be aware um, of this? You know, yeah, no, I mean, I think everything, I think everything else is, I mean, there, everything else is, would, would, would deserve kind of a deeper dive. Uh, and there are questions that we would, we literally could go on for hours and would be better in, you know, at, even in the virtual commit convention, even if it's not a presentation, even just a dialogue, um, I think would be helpful because I think there are a lot of things that, again, our collective wisdom, we all are going to bring different perspectives. We're all going to ask different questions. And my, the rest of my questions, I think, are, um, are kind of deeper dives. And I don't want to bore anybody um, more than we already have uh, with, with my rants and raves. The one thing I would, I would say, um, again, is I think the other thing uh, to, to draw out, not necessarily for the American audience, but again, an awareness that we need to have. When you look at something like number 51, um, again, you know, we talked about the intention of the document and the point of the document. Um, you know, it, it, again, this is something that left off the page to me. I'm like, what, what the heck? Like, what, what, where did this come from? But you know what it is? It, because it is the collective wisdom, because this is a document that's addressed to the entire world. Um, you know, the CDF, what I, what I want to say is the CDF has taken the time to include factors that are genuinely interculturally sensitive um, and has seen where there is a need to be more explicit about things that maybe you or I would take for granted. So again, I just, you know, I want to compliment, um, you know, I think everybody should have a very positive impression of this document. Everybody should be very complimentary of the CDF in this document. And I, and I say that with all sincerity. And I, I I commend the thought that has gone into this that goes beyond any one perspective uh, into a document that is genuinely addressed to the church universal. So that things that you and I would take for granted, um, someone somewhere else may never have thought of. And here we see something like, well, you know, that, that I just, you know, like I said, left off the page to me because I'm like, what, what, what's that doing there? And then you stop and you think there are places in the world where we need to where where this is very important where we you know we need to we need to stress different aspects than you or, than you or I would want to. So um, I just want to again I take this as an opportunity to commend the CDF and I hope that everyone else has a very positive impression of the document. Not perfect, nothing is perfect, but I think this is a tremendous uh, first effort, um, and I look forward to future revisions and I look forward to conversations with brothers and sister canonists. Um, so that we can help the CDF too think out think out some of these questions a little better. Well, we appreciate that, and we will certainly be inviting you back for more observations as time goes on, and and you start to produce uh, other things that you. I know you have to write now that you're a professor. So. Uh, remind me, please. <laughs> but we do appreciate it, and your insights are extremely valuable. We will be looking forward to Susan Mulhern's uh, webinar. They'll be coming up in two parts on the preliminary investigation and future webinars that I think you'll be participating in. So thank you so much for, for giving us this time this morning and helping with this important document. Thank you, Don. It's been a real pleasure. And Have thanks a great everybody day. for listening. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. <laughs>